I'm Craig Jenkins, the director of the Mershon Center, and I welcome you to a panel that we put together um, sort of in the midst of the topic. So what you're going to hear today, I think, is a rather interesting uh, discussion of uh, the recent events in the last uh, few months in Syria and uh, some background of that and then some discussions about the implications and the complexities of uh, what we call the Syrian crisis or the Syrian whatever it is exactly. Uh, is it going toward the civil war, is it not, and what? Uh, and how and what the implications of that would be will be the sort of, I think, the central topic. Um, and with that, I think what I'll do is I'll let uh, uh, Professor Tamir um, <coughs> He holds the Sophia chair of uh, George's. I'm going to hatch it. What's the title of the chair? Oh, it's Arabic studies. No more Arabic than studies. That. There you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, and uh, I'll let him introduce the panel, and we'll go for about an hour and uh, thereabouts, and then we'll open up for Q&A, okay? Well, thank you, Greg. I'm happy you're here. <laughs> uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you this afternoon to this panel on the Syrian crisis, as we call it, and its impact on the Middle East. As you know, uprisings began in the city of Dar'a in the southern uh, part of the country last March. Before that, Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, had ironically declared that Syria is not like Tunisia, not like Tunisia, Egypt, or Libya, and therefore would not be affected by the waves of change which hit these Arab countries. As protests against the over 40-year-old totalitarian regime have expanded rapidly to include several cities and rural areas. It seems that al-Assad, who a few days ago gave again a long speech with no concrete reform perspectives, was and has been deluding himself. Without a visible solution, I'm afraid the country is moving towards civil war. My impression was unfortunately strengthened by what was conveyed to me by a young Syrian who came from Damascus three days ago. With 22.5 million people, the society of Syria is multi-ethnic with Arabs, Kurds, Armenians, and other ethnic communities, multi-religious, Sunni Muslims, around 74%, <coughs> other Muslim communities, including the Alawites and the Druze, around 16%, Christians, various denominations, around 10%, and also tiny Jewish communities live there. In geopolitical terms, Syria is a major political and strategic player in the Middle East. As you see, it borders Turkey, Israel, Iraq, Jordan, and Lebanon. It has been playing an important role in the Arab-Israeli conflict. 
Syrian troops occupied wide Lebanese territories for around 30 years until 2005. Syrian support is crucial for Hezbollah, and Syria is strongly aligned with Iran and enjoys strong Russian support. <coughs> Taking all these regional factors into consideration, we would like to know the assessment of our distinguished speaker, Professor Amr al-Azm, who is an active member of the Syrian opposition and comes to us from Shani State University, regarding the current situation in Syria and possible developments of the crisis with its implications for the Middle East. After Dr. Al-Azm's presentation, Professor Rick Herman, whom I don't need to introduce in this place, Chair of Political Science, and Dr. Alam Payind, Director of the Middle East Study Center, will respond with comments and questions, which Dr. Al-Azm will have an opportunity to answer. Then we will open the floor for further discussion from the audience. Thank you very much, George, for uh, this uh, very uh, pleasant introduction. Um, <coughs> you'll have to excuse me if my voice sounds a little raspy, but uh, I think I'm coming down with something, and uh, I promise not to spread that out as well. Uh, the main thrust of my talk today, uh, I'm going to try and cover a lot, I guess, and it is a, a, a broad subject that we're going to be dealing with, and we have roughly half an hour to do it in. So I will try and uh, cover the points I want to cover, and uh, if there are areas that you feel you want me to expand on that the panel doesn't also hit on, and I'm sure they will hit on the areas that, that, um, that are of most interest, then I urge you to also pick, pick up on those. Um, the main thrust will be to outline roughly uh, who the opposition is in Syria, uh, maybe talk a little bit about the strategies um, uh, that we are trying to engage in, and uh, perhaps even time permitting how effective some of these strategies have or have not been. Uh, we'll need to look at the regime in terms of its responses and options, and maybe also try and look at why they've taken some of the responses, or why have they responded in the way they have, what's the, the rationale behind it, uh, and in, in, in so doing, I'll also maybe introduce the, the regional component here in terms of how do the regional players also see the, the situation in Syria. And, and finally, maybe come out with some endgame scenarios for us. And I can tell you right from right now, uh, a favorite, uh, uh, a good friend of mine put it, I think, quite accurately from quite early on in the first few weeks. He said, this is going to be a slow train wreck. And so far, this is what it's turning out to be, a slow train wreck. The Arab Spring, as we currently seem to refer to the phenomenon sweeping the Middle East, came as a surprise to many of us. Even though with hindsight, we can now look back and say, well, how could we have not predicted this? But many of us did not predict it. I don't know, I, 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 you know, the, we can have, you know, lots of talks about why and how we didn't predict it. But even as events of the Arab Spring were unfolding in front of us, uh, many of us continued to kind of doubt or even publicly say this could not happen in Syria. Um, 
George uh, mentioned that Bashar al-Assad in February very publicly announced that Syria is not Tunisia. And so he had a very firm conviction that even as events were, even as uh, Ben Ali was basically hurriedly packing his bags and leaving, as Mubarak fell, as events in Yemen were spiraling out of control, as uh, Gaddafi was beginning to really face his test, Bashar was utterly convinced that this could not happen to him. And he was not alone in that. In fact, I would quote you uh, Bassam Haddad, or I point you to Bassam Haddad, a, a prominent uh, and well-known uh, Syria specialist um, uh, from DC, from I think it's Georgetown he is at, um, uh, who, who wrote a, 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 a very important piece that was published two weeks before uh, the uprising in Syria, explaining precisely why it could never happen, it couldn't happen in Syria. Um, I, I called Bassam out on that at the time. I said, "Are you sure about this?" And he, he, you know, he he gave me a very kind of wishy-washy answer. And then I spoke to him later again, and obviously, you know. Anyway, but so, uh, you know, it's uh, Schadenfreude is not, <laughs> is you know, gloating is not what we're about right here. Yet it happened, and uh, for those of us who watch Syria, you know. If the real indicator, the real marker, was not the first events that started to unfold in Dara in mid-March, but about a month ago, when an incident happened at the heart of the commercial district of Damascus, in an area known as Haria, where a young man, a merchant, you know, had stopped a taxi to, un or he had, he was unloading some. Um, goods from, from a taxi that he was taking to, to his store. And he is approached by a, a couple of local policemen who want the taxi moved because he's causing an obstruction. A minor altercation occurs, and then the policemen proceed to beat up that young trader. He's a young man in his late 20s. The next few hours, I think, should have been very telling for the regime and for anybody else who was watching Syria, because it was like a spark, and suddenly you had a mini riot occur where people were coming out from everywhere and they were screaming and they were saying, we will not be humiliated. We will not be humiliated. A protest was almost spontaneously exploding there at the heart. This, and, and you have to perceive that this is, this is conservative uh, Damascus. This is a Damascus that is concerned primarily with making money with business. It does not go for revolutions. It does not go for explosions. It does not go for any of that stuff. In fact, this is the same Damascus that in 1982, when Homs, Hama, and Aleppo were all rising up against a weakened Assad, they chose to put their hands in with the regime and, 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 and uh, if you want, preserve the status quo in return for, uh, you know, if you want uh, advancing their own business interests. And yet in the same heart, you had this spark there. And that should have been very telling, but it wasn't. It, it happened and then they quickly sort of got resolved. And, you know, but that gave you a sense of what was going on. The other thing I want to just point out to you, just to give you a sense of what's going on here. Um, I'm going to quote you a, a statement made by a very senior um, security general by the name of Bajat Suleiman, 
who in 2000, May 2003 made the following statement. He said, in Syria, the regime does not have enemies, but opponents, whose demands do not go beyond certain political and economic reforms, such as the end of the state of emergency and martial law, the adoption of a law on political parties, and the equitable redistribution of national wealth. I.e., you know, simple demands that we can somehow at some point negotiate with this opposition if and when we see fit, but there is no serious threat to the general order of uh, affairs in Syria, to the grip and hold of the current regime on power. Minor stuff. And I think it is that persistent prevailing sense that really our position is unassailable, that really the people don't really want real change, that all they want is maybe uh, some more fuel subsidies, maybe some more bread subsidies, maybe uh, increased employment opportunities, maybe better access to housing. And if we just provide these, somehow this, you know, uh, we will be able to continue doing what we are doing in perpetuity, I think was a very prevalent um, condition. And in some ways continued, I think, until very recently to be the mindset of the regime and also of many people in Syria uh, who would be supporters of that regime. But this is all to change. The spark that was set off by the Arab Spring, by the events in Tunisia, by the events in Egypt, by the events in Yemen and in Libya, set something else up. We see the events, as uh, again George mentioned, starting up in Deraa, after, this is one month after that incident I mentioned to you in, in the heart of Damascus, down south in Deraa where a, uh, a group of young school children, the oldest being, I believe, about 15 or 16, um, would, uh, some say, copying or having heard slogans or having watched too much TV, you know, the, the old thing of t watching TV is bad for you, don't let your kids watch TV sort of thing. Okay, well, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but the, the story, maybe they watched, uh, maybe it's what, the, the, you know, they were watching some, uh, something on TV and that inspired them. Some others would tell you, no, no, it's the parents, you know, they, 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 they sort of, you know, they filled the heads of their children with, uh, with all sorts of nonsense. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is this. The point is that those children went out and basically scrawled graffiti on the walls of their school. Um, sentiments, statements, you know, uh, statements mirroring some of those that they were hearing in, in, in Yemen, down with the regime, you know, uh, democracy, etc. They were observed by the local school caretaker who reported one of the kids to the local security. The kids were very quickly rounded up, they were taken away, and then this untold horror story starts to unfold. The kids, you know, obviously the parents are very concerned. They expected them to maybe be taken away for a few hours and then return. Maybe the parents would get a stern, stiff warning from the local security. You better, you know, take better care of your kids. You should be more uh, attentive to what your kids are up to. But the kids disappear. And then after a few days, the parents are frantic. And eventually, they reach the uh, head of the local security for, for southern Syria, a gentleman uh, by the name of Atif Nasheeb, and an immediate cousin of the president, Bashar al-Assad. The meeting doesn't go well. 
Because in that meeting, um, the uh, parents say, look, give us back our kids. We'll take care of it. We'll make sure this never happens again. You know, we'll, you know, we'll make sure that the kids are properly, you know, disciplined, etc. But we'd like our kids back. And instead of uh, responding to their demands, Atif Najib then does the unimaginable. And, I, and, and I'm telling you this because you need to set this in the frame. Remember, this is Horan. This is a, a, a tribal, a region with strong tribal links. Uh, you know, th this is a, a, a strong uh, family connections and a strong sense of honor. And then Atif Najib does the unthinkable, the unimaginable. He turns around and says to them, forget those children. You do not have children. These children no longer exist. Furthermore, I would suggest that you go home and basically sleep with your wives and produce new ones. And if you are incapable of producing new children, then I will send my own men to sleep with your wives to produce new children. Those kids are finished, and in the meantime, those children were being subjected to the most horrific torture. I tell you this story not because it's some story that now, I mean, this story is very well known now, but it's not some mythical story that has been blown all out of proportion. And the reason why I'm telling this story, because I want to tell you who actually, I mean, I, I've heard it from various people. I've heard it from people from there. I've heard it from actual eyewitnesses. But I actually heard it also from a member of the regime. I actually heard it from, you know, um, in fact, he spent almost an hour telling me this story in graphic details. And that was the Syrian ambassador to the United States, Ahmad Mustafa. So even the regime was acknowledging that this is exactly what they did. So even they are not denying it. Well, the rest is history. The, the people of Dara go back out and they basically start an insurrection against the regime. And the regime then responds in the only way the regime, a regime as such, can respond. The regime responds by brutally suppressing these uh, protests. But it is not counting on the fact that this time history is against them. Um, people's emotions are very pent up. The socioeconomics of the country had changed. Ten years of failure for change, for reform under Bashar had taken their toll on the country. Dara and this area of Horan had been suffering a serious drought for over four or five years. The heartland of support for the regime, which used to be Horan, used to be the same area of Dara, many of the senior officials of the regime come from Dara, come from that region. But the region had been neglected. And so feelings were running very high. And the results were that the situation spun out of control. I can tell you that the regime could have responded very quickly and very effectively early on to put an end to all this. In fact, Various people, including the locals, the parents of the children themselves, a couple of weeks later, when they were called up to meet with Bashar al-Assad, said, they said to him, look, all we want is an apolo a public apology and 
you know, the persons involved in the, you know, torture, sort of abuse of our children, to be, you know, punished. For you to say some, you know, to, to, to come, to, for, you to, for you as Bashar al-Assad to attend the funerals of those who were killed and maybe make some pleasant, polite statement, and we can get over this and move on. But the regime's response was the exact opposite. Bashar would soon make his first and most appalling speech at, at the parliament, which becomes a mockery of the regime and of the ability of the regime to respond to this crisis. And that should not be surprising to us, because this is a regime that, as far as we can tell, is not a regime, has, in fact, never has it really demonstrated its ability to actually respond proactively or actually be able to um, think ahead of events and, and, and head them off or actually be able to somehow um, analytically coordinate itself in terms of finding the appropriate responses. This is a regime that plays off a playbook. It has a playbook. The playbook was written by probably the father. And the playbook is very clear. It says, when you see a protest, when you see um, resistance, you crush it. The playbook does not say, if you have a protest or if you have resistance, go and negotiate with them. So there is no negotiation. There never has been. No real effort. For the regime itself, it has always been follow the playbook. There's a protest going on. Go out there and, 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 and crush it with violence. It doesn't work, then you obviously haven't applied enough violence to crush it. You need to apply further violence. And it continues to be incapable of understanding that the more violence it applies, the more, uh, the more brutal its approach, the more it is spiraling out of control. Because it is incapable, it, it appears, and, and it's clear to us, it is incapable of looking beyond the narrow confines of its playbook. Um, let's look at the opposition itself, because the opposition is quite interesting too. Syria, because after 40 years of living under a totalitarian, authoritarian regime like the Assad regime, um, is a Syria that, whose, whose opposition is really almost non-existent, very fragmented. Um, and in fact, I will classify the Syrian opposition into three broad categories for you. The first category is what we call the traditional opposition. It is uh, the known, it comprises of known intellectuals and figures such as Arif Dalila, Riyad Saif, um, Haysam Malih, Barhan Ghalyu, and so on and so forth. These are what we often also uh, call the tea house opposition. You know, they used to sit in the tea houses, they would talk and discuss, and uh, every once in a while they would 
come up with some declaration or, or, or some, uh, you know, like the Damascus Declaration, or uh, which was basically against the Syrian regime's occupation of. It started off as a, against the Syrian regime's uh, presence in in Lebanon and so on and so forth. You also have a few traditional opposition parties that had always been very heavily, uh, all banned, all heavily, uh, you know, suppressed. These would include. Um, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, who are outlawed in Syria, obviously, um, and some of the more uh, traditional pan-Arab leftist, you know, uh, uh, parties, leftovers from the 60s and early 70s, but again, really very ineffective in terms of a, 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 a viable uh, political opposition against the regime. The second group, and that's really the group that has been responsible for the majority of activity on the street. They are the guys who have moved this revolution, who have moved this uprising, who have generated it, who have galvanized it, who have fed it, energized it, and so on. And, so on. and these, these are the youth movements. These were spontaneous movements. This is the grassroots, if you want, activists. These are the grassroots activists and the organizations that emerged from this grassroots movement. There was almost none of it before. And it all came about right at the start of this um, uprising. They tend to be young, and until very recently did not even identify or recognize any of the first group that I just mentioned, your traditional parties or your, uh, you know, known uh, figures, intellectuals, and so on and so forth. There was a total disconnect between the two. These, the, these are the guys who are manning the barricades every day, who are getting shot at every day. When we see 30 dead, 40 dead, it's usually these guys. These are the guys who are bleeding on the street. And then the third category, and that's what I call the diaspora, or the external opposition. And I guess I count as one of those, because I live out here. And again, we in the diaspora had to find a place for ourselves in all this. The diaspora included many different categories. It included exi political exiles, real political exiles who were exiled by the regime. In, it included uh, opposition members from, say, the Muslim Brotherhood to uh, political dissidents and to people like myself who, until this uprising, really had very little to do with the opposition but felt it was necessary, it was time to, you know, join in and, 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 and participate. Initially, when the uprising started, much of the opposition was basically fragmented and, and, and disorganized. And it took the first meeting in Antalya at the end of May to bring this very wide um, diaspora together and actually get it to meet, in some cases, for the first time with some of the leaders of the opposition from the inside, those youth uh, movement leaders. This occurred in Antalya at the end of May, you know, May 30, June 1, June 2, June 3. It was the first of the big gatherings. Several conferences, gatherings occurred after that. And eventually, the opposition was able to coalesce 
sufficiently to come up with what we now today refer to as the SNC or the Syrian National Council. That is really an umbrella, an umbrella group of all the different groupings, some political, some, uh, you know, some traditional, some new, um, many of them from the, from the inside, from those what we call the LCCs, the Local Coordination Committees. And today it is the primary body that speaks for the opposition. I won't bore you by telling you um, details and stories about how difficult this actual bringing together has been or how fractious this gathering is and how fragile it is as a coalition. But so far, so good, and they're holding out. In terms of strategies as an opposition, how do we, how do we, what are we hoping to achieve? And this will also then lead us into um, the whole idea, the whole issue of is it going to continue to be peaceful or is it now, going, now sliding into war? And I don't think you need me to tell you that it's already sliding into war, civil war. Initially, um, I, I need you to imagine this as a, as a wedge, a wedge with three sides, that you're going to drive between the regime. And by the regime here, right now, I am referring to what I call first family, Bashar and his immediate family, his brother, his brother-in-law, his sister, and their very close coterie, their, their immediate, what you might call decision makers, the top decision makers, the, the mainstay of the regime. This is a very small clique of people, maybe 20, 30 people at most. And you want to drive a wedge between those and the rest of the regime, those separated from them by a one, two, three, four degrees of separation. These may be senior generals in the army. These may be senior members of, uh, 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 of the government. But you need to drive that wedge. So how are you going to drive that? What, what's, how, how, how are you going to persuade these people that you need to, how are you going to push them away from that core group? The protests are the first side of that wedge, the street protests. They're very important. And the bigger the better, and the more the better. I mean, on, fr on, a, on any given Friday, we have anything between 400 and 500 flashpoints. These are very important. It doesn't matter whether there's five or 500 or 5,000 or 5 million people out on the street. What matters is that there are many, many flashpoints. Because they constantly send one repetitive, clear message to the regime. To a regime, remember that trades and basically exists for one purpose only, to say, I am in control, I am in charge, I'm the total authority here. If you, have pro if you have a regime that is supposed to be in total control and you have 500 flashpoints against it in one day, that is not a regime that is in control. It breaks the image of Bashar al-Assad and his brother and those around them that they are actually in control. And that's very important. Because it attacks the very gravitas of the Assad family. 
And it also starts this idea, in, it's, it, it, it reignites this idea. Are you really like your father? Your father was in charge. Your father was feared. Nobody fears you. They're not under your rule. You've destroyed the country. You, you, you know, people are in the streets making a mockery of you, of your name. They've even taken, they've destroyed your statues and your pictures. They've torn down the statues of your father. We've had to take them up, literally, we've had to save the statues of your father from the, 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 the appalling thought of having them destroyed and, 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 and abused in the same way that statues of Saddam Hussein were, or, 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 uh, or, or of uh, uh, Muammar Gaddafi were, were, were abused. In fact, there's a classic uh, story of one statue of Hafez al-Assad um, where in, in, a, in a small town called Talbisi, somewhere between Homs and Hama, where they, the statue, they didn't save that statue, the statue was torn down, they took the head off, and then a, 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 young, a young boy, you know, in a, you know, 10 year old boy, then basically squats over it. And it's, it's, it's iconic, this image. In a regime like the Assad regime, you might as well pack your bags and go home. You failed. You have there is no there is no raison d'être for you to exist anymore. If you cannot control, if you cannot protect the image, then what are you? Who are you? So that's very important. That's the first side of the wedge, and it plants that idea. It it creates an impression in the minds of the rest of the regime that this these guys are not in charge. They're, they're incapable of doing. They're not there. They're not what their father was. They're not really capable of doing the job. The second side is the economy. You're going after that merchant military complex that was created in the 70s between the father, Hafez al-Assad, and the merchants of Damascus and Aleppo that has held this regime effectively together for so many decades. But remember, those merchants are only going to continue supporting the regime if it's worth their while if the regime is providing them with the stability, financial, economic, political, security. If the economy is going, if the economy is failing and the members of the regime and those allied with the regime are no longer making money, in fact they're, they're not making money, and look at it now, the Syrian pound I think has reached 71 or 72 today, the economy is in almost total ruin and collapse. Again, they're going to look at Bashar and say, this is your fault. You're, you're unfit. I think we need to change. And then, so we have two sides of the wedge. And the top of the wedge is the international community. And that's what's going to hammer down that wedge and crack open the regime. And it's going to be that international pressure, the sanctions, the constant, you have to go, this is no good. You're, 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 you know, the, the regional players, the regional actors, Turkey, Egypt, um, Saudi Arabia, and everybody else around, basically saying, you are creating such an unstable situation for us. The blowback that's going to come out of the... If, if your regime collapses, if you drive this country into civil war, you're going to create such a mess for all of us. We can't tolerate this. You have to go. I mean, this sounds great, doesn't it? But, I mean, have we achieved a lot of this? Where are we? I'll tell you right away. And, and you can bring that up in your questions if you want and sort of dig into that a little more. Um, it's not been easy for a lot of reasons, and I can go into the details of that a little later on if you want. Um, but that's the only option we have. And it's a very important option, because we see how things are now basically emerging. 
The regime has pursued relentlessly a policy of not only um, violently trying to suppress the opposition, but also of um, generating, and, and, and in fact to me, they opened Pandora's box, the, the, the box of sectarianism, to try and hold on to what few allies they have within the country. They have, they have waived the sectarian, they have played the sectarian card. They've gone to their own, remember they, they belong to the Alawi minority. They've gone to their own minority and they said, the Sunnis are now going to come and exact their revenge from you. They've gone to the Christians and said, now you're going to be ruled by Salafis, who are going to basically, you know, you're going to get another Iraq. And they've gone to the internet, even, they've even tried it with the international community and the regional players. But, and they have actually pushed for a military solution. They want a military solution because they feel that militarily they are the best, they are, they are the strongest. And they still are. They have all the tanks, they have all the rockets, they have all the big cards. But that's slipping out of their hands because increasingly we see the regional players unwilling to allow this to degenerate into a full-blown, um, basically, war. And at the same time, the regime itself, and as we see in the last speech he gave only last week, the regime is now no longer even willing to just follow its own story of, oh, well, we are responding to terrorism, this is uh, some sort of... Now they've gone on the offensive, which tells us that now they're preparing for the next phase, which is also probably a war. A war with their own people. The battles going on today in Zabadani, which is less than 30 kilometers away from Damascus. Fierce battles. The battles, they're losing control of the main cities. And once they lose control of the main cities, and by losing control, I don't mean they're going to be defeated, but they no longer feel able to control. They will gradually withdraw to their own enclaves. And then they will basically reestablish themselves from there. And then one, if that happens, then we have a new chapter coming up. How does that all end? There are two possible options. One is that wedge gets driven and basically those who are within the regime but not part of that immediate clique decide this has gone far enough. This first family, this, this, this family of the Assad family is going to not only destroy this country but they're going to also destroy the uh, Alawi minority as well with them. We cannot afford to go into a war of attrition with the majority. So, and you have a scenario not maybe too dissimilar to the scenario we had in Egypt where you have a quasi-Tantawi-like character coming in and saying, okay, the army basically cracks and says, right, and then you get this split and the regime collapses. Or it goes one step further, it goes into full civil war and um, then uh, and, and, and then you will have, you know, and that is still possible, even if the army cracks, then Bashar and his immediate followers will retreat back to their Alawi mountains on the coastal region up there. And once they do that, um, then again, you will have a, 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 a war scenario. I think I'll stop here because I think I'm out of time. And if you want then to explore any of these aspects, I'd be happy to explore them through your questions. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. Thank you.
Herman? Well, many more questions than 10 minutes. <laughs> Any comments? So Would you I like think to I'll use the microphone? Do I need one? Can you hear me? Yeah. I think I'll just confine myself to questions, oh. being uh, clearly the outsider among uh, specialists in the Arab world. And I have three, I think, uh, questions that uh, occur to me. We've seen in the Arab world in the last uh, nine months a number of different outcomes. <coughs> in Egypt, you know, the ouster of the president, but we're very far away from a real change in mm. the power structure of the military. And as you start to describe driving this wedge between uh, Assad's inner circle and the rest of the regime, I'm wondering if you imagine a scenario similar to throwing uh, Mubarak under the bus to save the rest and to save the stability of then what is preserved after that. And would the rest of the regime in Syria be comfortable with majority rule? And there I see a big difference between Syria and Egypt. And where I can imagine the military elite in Egypt uh, comfortable with majority rule, they have a problem in finding a way to build an alliance to the Muslim Brothers and the, and the Akharam, but it doesn't seem to me that that would be impossible for them. We've seen Pakistan do that, uh, and we've not seen it yet in, in Turkey, of course, that kind of alliance between the military and the, and the religious conservatives. But in Syria, it seems to me, this regime's security apparatus seems so heavily dependent on the minorities, both Alawi and Christian, uh, that <coughs> I'm, not, I'm not confident that when you drive that wedge, that what remains among the security apparatus is to be comfortable with majority rule. So it's that my first, and we've seen then in other places uh, different kinds of outcomes. Bahrain, you know, and not an Arab state, <coughs> uh, Iran in 2009 simply hung tough and crushed them. Uh, now it doesn't mean that the simmers aren't still there, but I'm wondering whether that's a possibility in your mind. And of course we've seen still in Yemen uh, Salah going and coming and coming back and going and who knows what will end up there. <laughs> so my true. first line here of, of asking is more, more conversation about the real practicality of this strategy of separating Assad from the rest and then what does the rest look like? What kind of um, future regime do you imagine that will allow the residual elements of this security regime to work with an opposition? The second set of questions I've got as I've listened and, and I've watched this now for a long time, when I was going back to Syria in the 90s more frequently, um, what I heard often uh, in Damascus was that after uh, Hama, uh, there was a pretty active effort on the regime after about a decade to engage in some uh, serious co-optation of the Sunni urban merchant elite. And the way that was occurring, I was told often, was intermarriage between the merchant families of the Sunni elite in largely the big urban cities, because I think traditionally the Sunni merchants controlled much of the economy in Syria. But the Alawite bureaucrats and some of the others in the regime controlled the ability to do commerce in the ports, taxes. We all understand how this works. So the smart thing of rich families to do was to marry their children uh, capital with uh, bureaucratic yeah. regulatory juice. <coughs> and it seemed to me that after 30 years of doing this, there would have been some uh, potential um, 
community there of people who now have sort of mixed interest in seeing this regime collapse and who have a lot of financial interests at stake. And I've often wondered if that's one of the reasons we don't see uh, big mass disturbances in Damascus or Aleppo. But this seems to have been a, a revolt, as you call it, that started in the periphery. And while it's made it in small numbers into the big city of Damascus or Aleppo, much less so. Nothing like we saw in Tehran or Cairo. And that's continued to, to puzzle me why, if there's a huge mass base behind this. Uh, obviously, I understand this is an authoritarian regime, and big mass protests <coughs> are hard, but that was true in Egypt and Iran, too. The, the third set of questions I have revolve around this civil war scenario. Um, probably for 15 or 20 years, uh, but certainly the last 10, it's been an obsession in Washington to talk about civil war in Iraq. And this scenario, often portrayed as a regional nightmare, would involve the division of the state and then Saudi Arabia supporting a Sunni group, Iran, of course, supporting uh, the Shia plurality, uh, Kurds <coughs> for the hills with maybe American and Israeli support, and so on. But it looks, what's the possibility that that regional war, very serious war, that people thought could get touched off in Iraq will actually get touched off in Syria and spill into Iraq? That it seems to me that there's a dangerous trigger possibility here. We, you didn't talk much about this yet, but if we're just starting to move towards civil war, as we saw in Libya, that means the opposition needs weapons, and that means external support. And they would not have been successful in Libya without that. And here, it seems to me, and I don't know much about this, but it looks to me like the Syrian opposition would have plenty of potential uh, supporters. Right? I could imagine uh, the Turks, who are keen to maybe see a little bit decline in the secular uh, regime in Syria, as well as uh, the Alawite. <coughs> uh, you know, there's a substantial Alawite minority in Turkey. And they control the army. And uh, they're quite unhappy about this. And so I can imagine a, a Saudi Arabian effort, maybe even not too distant future, of Ikhwan-led uh, Egypt interested in the, mother, the brothers in Syria. And so an alliance, weird as it might sound today, between the new regime of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, politics make strange bedfellows, to end the secular regime in Egypt, I mean in Syria, and bring about a Sunni majoritarian rule, uh, you know, to change the laws that make Muslim Brotherhood membership capital offense and bring about a regime looking more like it looks like Egypt's headed toward. Uh, I could imagine uh, Iran, oddly, because it's a secular, I mean a religious regime itself trying to stop that. Um, Israel might for its own reasons, just like to see this regime come down. Uh, we didn't talk at all about Israel, uh, but I'm wondering what your perception <coughs> is of what its interest in all of this might be. It seems to me they're deeply conflicted. They are. Um, uh, I can enormously contradictory. So as I start to think about this, I could imagine where Saudi Arabia starts to, we thought Saudi Arabia was fighting a proxy war in Lebanon with Syria. And now it looks like the proxy war may have moved mm -hmm. uh, from Lebanon to Syria proper, mm -hmm. and the proxy war now will be between Iran mm -hmm. and Saudi Arabia, uh, and then maybe spilling over into Iraq. And we know how fragile um, post-America Iraq is, and so I could imagine that we see a very serious regional fight. <coughs> so that was my 10 minutes.
Okay. Thank you. Dr. Payin. Yeah, when I was asked to participate in this panel, so what I did, uh, I went to my notes uh, that I went to Syria and Iran four times from 19, 2004 up to now. So what I did, I, th I thought I would focus on and at least uh, studied area of the Iranian-Syrian uh, relations. So I focused on that. Uh, from listening to the United States media and Middle Eastern media and other international media uh, and the presidential debate and the presidential campaigns in this country, one can argue that the nuclear ambitions uh, and of Iran and its <coughs> activist policies in Syria, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, and Bahrain will hover over the American scene until the election day and also even beyond that. I will try to briefly focus on only Syria, Syria's enduring alliance with Iran. According to many Middle Eastern experts, uh, Syria and Iran were drawn together because they were both isolated. Uh, and for Syria, there was very little left except to really embrace Iran, <laughs> even though we all know that the Iranian-Syrian relation is not people-to-people -people relationship. It is the state-to-state, -state, and also it's the Bazari merchants of, of Iran, and as the professor mentioned here, it's the, merchant, the Sunni merchants uh, of, uh, of Syria in different cities of Damascus, Aleppo, Dara, and others. Uh, despite continued pressures from the Sunni Arab neighbors and the West, Syria's alliance with the Shia majority country of Iran is holding very strong and seems to be deepening. Uh, Syria's neighbors in the West have strongly criticized Iran for playing a destabilizing role in each of the five regional conflicts, which is in Iraq, which has 60% Shiites, uh, Bahrain, which has the majority of them are Shiites, in Lebanon, majority are the Shiites. In Afghanistan, the Shiites are minority, they are 15%. But still, Iran is very active and plays an <coughs> activist policy uh, in, in Afghanistan. The alliance's breadth has ensured that the relationship is not merely a tactical marriage of convenience, uh, as mentioned by some observers, rather than its relation. Uh, which is deepening each by, by the passage of time uh, in a variety of realms, strategic, political, economic, cultural, and sectarian, which uh, in Iranian Farsi, it is the madhabi, which is the, the as professor mentioned, that Alawites uh, are a minority. Well, we don't have accurate census. They can be. Well, most of the sources that would say they are only 12% uh, of, the, of the total population in Syria has about 10% of the uh, Christians and about 3% Druze and about 10% Kurdish. But if you divide the Muslims into two groups uh, of the Shia Sunni and Alawites belong to a branch of the, of the Shiites, but 1,000 years ago they have separated from the main Shia branch because of their all Muslims revere Ali, the son-in-law of the Prophet Muhammad. But the Alawites, almost a thousand years ago, they considered that Ali to be divine. 
which even for Muslims, Prophet Muhammad is not divine and worshipable. So that's one, the, the break with, the, with, with, the, with not only with the Sunni Muslims, but also with the other Shia branches of the 12ers and the 5th ers and the 7ers. So that differences are there. So Iranian-Syrian relations uh, continues. Uh, in the past eight years, uh, we have seen that it is even getting stronger. Uh, since the Iranian Revolution of 1979, in the hostage crisis of the 1980-1981, when you talk to the Syrians, intellectuals, professors, uh, merchants in the bazaar, uh, and even common taxi drivers, they really enjoy to say things which is which very anti-West feelings are there. So these are some of the things that which in my observation and my studies I have collected. Uh, since the Iranian revolution of the 1979 and the hostage crisis of the 1980-1988, all six American presidents, from President Carter to President Obama, have experienced enormous difficulties in dealing uh, with Iran's activist and destabilizing policies in the Middle East. Uh, from the beginning of the eight-year war between Iran and Iraq, in 1980, uh, which continued for full eight years, except Syria as an Arab majority country, all other major countries supported Saddam Hussein's Iraq under the Saddam. Syria was the only one country which remained outside that support for. So that's one thing that the Syrians and both <coughs> Iranians are acknowledging and mentioning. Uh, another very important comment that you will hear in Iraq and Syria both is that while both countries' interests could diverge in the long term, uh, in the long term, but the leadership of Ayatollahs in Iran and of the Alawites in Syria will continue to ensure that the alliance will continue for a longer period of time. Now I will go just say that what are the potential dividers between Syria and Iraq, and what are the potential uniters uh, of the first of one of the dividers is the religious and, uh, and ethnicity in both countries. Iran is a predominant, predominantly Persian uh, and Asna Ashari are the 12 uh, Shiites while Syria is a Sunni majority country ruled by over the minority of the Alawites and <coughs> Alawites as I mentioned that it's a group that even the other Sunnis do not acknowledge to be at, at best they're considered heretics and at worst, they're considered infidels, even by that. Except there was Musa al-Sadr in, in, in Lebanon that which considered that, well, they are the, they are the family members of the 12 or Shiites, which still did not set well with the majority of the Shiites. Now, that's one thing. What unites them uh, and its ideology, that's one thing which are dividing them. Syria have been pursuing a pan-Arab nationalism, which is Baathism slash Baathism, which in Iranian and Arabic, both is a Qawmi Arabiya, but Iran is <coughs> an Iranian Khomeini-style Islamic revolution. Uh, Pan-Arabism is a secular movement, but while the Iranian leadership, which is considered by the other Iranians, which especially in Iran, when you go there, <coughs> I was there about three years ago, uh, still they consider the leadership. They consider themselves Pairavi Khati Imam in Farsi, which means that we are the followers of the line of Imam Khomeini. So they have not deviated uh, from that what Khomeini has established for Iran. Uh, now these are the, the, some, the, 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 the uniters, which is uniting Iran in Syria. Uh, it's given uh, the differences that I mentioned above. 
uh, it is, one is that economy. Uh, both of them are the sanctions in the West, the Western Europe and the United States sanctions, and also other countries, uh, even Turkey is participating in some of these sanctions. Uh, the hardship has been created for both Iran uh, and Syria. So they, among themselves, have a billions of dollars business that they are conducting. Uh, in the eight year of war with Iraq, Iran was the one that which supplied oil to, to Syria. So that's one thing which unites them. Another is the reaction to the regional threats. Uh, Iran and Syria are drawn together in a realist defensive alliance against common regional enemies. And namely, what <coughs> in both Syria and Iran, you will see the almost similar views that our enemies are Israel, the United States, the Western Europe, and Sunni Arab radical groups, the remnants of the Ba'ath Party in, 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 in Iraq. So the argument is that if these external threat and if these sanctions will disappear, uh, probably Iran and Syria will not continue this sort of alliance which, which exists right now. And I will end here and I have only one question. Uh, when is that, uh, how many of the, well, Druze are the minority, the Christians are the minority, Kurds are the minority, the Alawites are the minority, except Alawites. Is there any other minority group which supports the uprising in Syria that you know of or we? Okay. I do not know that if there is any minority group supporting the uprising. So they're all solidly against the uprising, the minority groups. Thank you so much. Greg, would you like to add? Any further I think questions? we ought to go back and so then, okay. uh, please. We have ten minutes to respond wow. to these comments. Yes, please. Okay, and then I will. Have to open the door. <coughs> sure, I, uh, I will. And please yes. focus in your answers on, uh, on 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 perspectives. I mean, what what would the opposition? I mean, in case the the regime would collapse. I mean, in case there would be an alternative. What do you have a program? Yes. Do you have something which you would offer to the people, especially the minorities, yeah. catching up here? Minorities are afraid. Not only the Christians, after they've seen what happened to them in Iraq, also um, members of, of, of Druze, my, the Druze minority are afraid. Remember what Walid Jumblad said to, uh, to five days ago, re recalling the collective memory, which is merciless. So everybody there is afraid uh, of what would happen uh, if the regime would collapse. And another factor which was not mentioned in addition to Israel, the Russians, the Russian role. Today, Lavrov said, Syria is a red line. We would not allow <coughs> any interference from outside. Um, I, I'm going to try and address many of these issues and I will try and inject some of the perspectives that you have uh, very important, in fact they are very important that, that you have also raised. In, in terms of the Egypt Mubarak scenario, what we call the, 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 the possible Tantawi scenario, um, remember as you quite rightly pointed out, in Egypt they threw Mubarak under the bus. The regime saved itself. You had a change in the leader in the head but the regime itself didn't go away. And in a way, uh, Egypt is still undergoing a revolution. It is still 
it has, an, it has unfinished business with its own regime. And we may yet even see another revolution in Egypt further down the line. I don't know. But one of the reasons why this, one of the reasons why it panned out the way it did in Egypt was because the Muslim Brotherhood decided to throw their lot in with the regime. And they saw this as an opportunity to, to, to grab power for themselves. And there are some very interesting dynamics there. This is not the case in Syria, obviously. And we don't have that. We don't have a Tantawi, and we don't have that scenario, at least on offer. Um, majority rule and can it work in Syria? And uh, I, I just want to say one thing about majority rule. I think it's very important to uh, make it clear that by majority rule, it, it, it is not necessarily just a case of okay, that means all the Sunnis take over, and then they and then they, they bring out their little uh, black book of. Um, you know, ill deeds, and then they say, ah, on such a, you know, and then that is not majority. That is just replacing one tyranny with another. And if this is what we are fighting for, then I, I, I resign immediately. And I can tell you, just to bring that perspective that you're mentioning, George, there, there are the, the opposition, and there are many key figures within the opposition that are working towards the idea of a scenario of what happens the day after the collapse. And in fact, in order to uh, not just what happens after the collapse, but in order to bring about this collapse, you need to start to engage the minorities. You need to start to address some of those issues that are very important and, and that have been raised and continue to be raised by the international community, by Syrians on the inside, by people that we know who will say to us, okay, so if the regime collapse, what are you, who, who? in fact, the, the classic question is, so who, who's going to take over? Well, you know, and, and then you have to say, well, wait a minute, it's not about who, because we're not replacing one figurehead, we're not replacing one dictator with another dictator, we, you know, the, 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 what will replace is obviously, hopefully, a, a, a functioning democracy. But it, in order to be a functioning democracy, obviously, it cannot turn into the tyranny of the majority over the minority. But these are issues that have to be addressed. And one of the key areas in which you begin to address these is by working on the transitional uh, process. The transition, the, the, the more prepared you are for the transition, the, the smoother it will go. In Egypt, they never got that because they, they didn't really have a, a, a collapse of the regime. In uh, Tunisia, it's a little different. The dynamics there are a little different. And every area is different. I say that in Syria, if I can even begin to imagine that we are somehow lucky in this, the longer it's taking us to bring this change about, the longer it's taking us to bring down the regime, the more time it is giving us to prepare and, and work out these, some of these issues. Have we done enough? No. Uh, do we still have a lot more to do? Yes. Um, but they are core issues that are very much on everybody's mind and they are being, you know, and there and are attempts to address them by a variety of people. And I just came back from Berlin, in fact. I, I belong to uh, one of those uh, um, key groups that are working on the transitional process. We're looking at transitional justice. You know, if the, if the regime does fall, you know, how do you prevent people from running out into the streets and taking revenge on their neighbors? Or how do you prevent uh, revenge killings? How do you, how do you make sure that the, 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 the streets remain being policed? They're, and, and, the, and there, are, uh, there are experts on this, and there are models that have been, you know, and you, and, and you have to prepare for this. And there are those of us who are already working on that. So in some ways, maybe this addresses this very important issue that you raised. Um, 
In terms of the uh, leftovers of the regime and how do they work with the opposition, I mean, again, you look at South Africa, you look at um, uh, other countries where you have had those transitions. And you cannot, the problem with Iraq, and everybody refers back to Iraq as the benchmark. Oh my God, this is what happens when a, when a regime goes. It, 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 but remember, part of that problem occurred because of the very ill-advised process of debathification. That was the, I mean, I, I always try to explain this to my students. What happens if you have a power cut in any major city in the US? You guys cannot live for three hours with a power cut. You, you get looting, you get disturbances, you get all sorts of, you know. So why do you expect a country that lived under 30, 40 years of the most oppressive, brutal regime like Saddam Hussein, you know, you, you, they suddenly, you know, you wake up in the morning, there's no police, no, no security, no electricity, no nothing, and everybody's supposed to sit there and wait in their homes until somehow it magically reappears again. It doesn't work like that. Okay, so there has to be a proper transition. And, and we all know now, and we have hindsight for this, that the post-Saddam Iraq transition was most appallingly handled, most appallingly prepared, ill-prepared for. There were reports coming out weeks and months even before the invasion of Iraq wailing about that. I've read several of them that came out of various very prestigious institutions all saying, if you go into Iraq, that ill-prepared, you're going to have a catastrophe on your hands. Almost everybody who in the know predicted what was going to happen in Iraq, except for the Bush administration. So I don't think we want to visit that too much. Okay? And to keep harping on and saying, well, the, you know, you, you're, you're pushing your country to a, an Iraq scenario is not, not, not really true, because that's not to say that the regime is not using that card and is not playing on that fear, and the fears of the people inside are that we will be pushed. But it's actually not that easy to push yourself into an Iraq. It takes, it takes an almost incredible amount of incompetence to create an Iraq for you. Co-opting the uh, Sunni regime in the marriage, and you said, we, we call it the merchant military complex. And it was very well set up uh, by, by, by Hafez al-Assad. It was exactly how he was able to control the country and persuade the, the, the majority of the Sunnis to go with him against the Muslim Brotherhood in Hama. You know? And in fact, what people forget is that the troops that spearheaded the attack on Hama were not just the Alawi troops, the Alawi units. They were spearheaded by the Deris, the, 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 uh, the guys, the, the tribal troops from, from the Deris Zor and, and the Jazeera area, and also from, uh, from Horan. They, the regime had already co-opted a significant amount of Sunnis who had always been, if you want, disenfranchised by the upper middle class merchant um, Sunni uh, uh, classes. And, and they co-opted them into that. And they became the backbone of the support of the regime. So the question that begs itself now is, isn't it interesting that the very regions who were willing to go up against the merchant classes in the 80s and the 70s are now the very regions who are rising up against the regime, Hamoran and, and, and the Jaziri. And the very people who were supposed to have risen up against the regime, i.e. Aleppo and Damascus, or so, you know, did not. And one of the reasons for that is that there was, a, 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 there, you know, and you're right, there is that intermarrying and, and so on and so forth. But there's another dynamic that changed that a lot of people don't or forget. 
the way it worked with the uh, merchant military complex is that you were the merchant, you had the business acumen, you had the, the, the in some cases, the money as well, and you had the, 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 the regime which was basically the officers, if you want, the army officers, the security officers, the generals, if you wanted, who would basically become silent partners in the operation. They would co provide the, 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 the bureaucratic cover, the 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 the, um, the greasing of the wheels, and in return they would get a share of the profits. But by the time Bashar, when Bashar became uh, took over power, he brought in with him a new generation of of regime people, many of whom did not want to follow in the footsteps of their fathers and, and grandfathers. So the son of Bajat Sleiman, the very senior, you know, did not want to become a officer in intelligence. He wanted to become an entrepreneur. He wanted to become a media mogul. The uh, sons of, uh, for example, uh, Tlas, Mustafa Tlas, the, the, the defense minister, didn't want to become uh, also generals in the army. One of them did, in fact, Manaf, but the other one, Firas, is, is a businessman. Uh, Rami Makhlouf didn't want to follow in his uh, you know, family's tradition and become a, 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 a security officer, a high rank. No, he wanted to become an entrepreneur. And so that changes the dynamic. Suddenly, there's no sharing anymore because why should we share anything with the merchant class? Now we can have it all for ourselves. And he created, it locked out a lot of those traditional Sunni families out of the money-making process. And that created an, a, a new kind of tension. In, and then add on top of that, neglect of the traditional support, the co-opted Sunni support that came from the hinterlands, from, from Horan, from you know, uh, Horan is the hinterland of Damascus, and the Jazeera is the hinterland of Aleppo. It created that rift between them. And, and so the dynamics are different now. You say we don't see a lot of protests in Damascus. You see, you, ha you have to define Damascus for me. Because Damascus is, are you just talking about Salhiyya, uh, you know, Dimashq al-Qadimi, and, and maybe Mahajirin, uh, not even Mahajirin, but are you, and, and, and then maybe Abu Ramani? That's not Damascus. Damascus today includes Dimma, includes Barzi, includes Kafar Susi, includes all these places. Damascus is a huge, sprawling city of, of almost five, five million people. Okay, and so so if you want to look, yeah, maybe those, you know, upper middle class shishi areas are not rising up, and and then the merchants and the shopkeepers. And remember, most of these, when we talk about the merchant class of Syria, we're talking about small shopkeepers. It's it's not like big conglomerates and large. We're talking about shopkeepers who maybe a son and uh, maybe a father and two or three children, they have a couple of stores, and their entire wealth is concentrated in, in, in what stock they have or uh, in, in those stores. And so if that's destroyed, everything goes. So it's also hard. They are worried about what that brings, you know, when you have that kind of instability. So they need also to be reassured. And, and that sort of, I guess, addresses that. Um, in terms of Israel, I think, and that's an important one. Look, the Israelis, as you said, are conflicted for a variety of reasons. But I can tell you, uh, in, in the words of a, the uh, recently retired um, head of military intelligence, I, ha I was fortunate enough to, to have a long chat with him. And after that chat, he stood up at a similar gathering like this, and he said um, he no longer saw the Syrian regime as an asset and felt that, in fact, Syria would be better off, and Israel in particular would be better off without the Syrian regime. And he closed his, his talk by saying 
he did not think that Syria would descend into the sort of chaos of Iraq for the one and very simple reason is that Syria does not have a neighbor like Syria. <laughs> you know. Um, in terms of proxy, look, the blowback is very serious. Do you, do you want me to finish? No, no, uh, no. Okay. The, yeah. Ten more words. Ten more words. The proxy war is, 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 a, is a very important issue. Um, the regional actors are very concerned. And I think this is one of the reasons why we are seeing ever-increasing Arab engagement and this whole tug of war right now that is happening within the Arab League and within the international community of, of how, do we, how do we control this issue. It is because of the very, you know, dangers that this may spill over the borders into Lebanon, into Iraq, and into, and if, and if Syria fragments, Here's, and I'll finish with that. If Syria fragments for some reason, the Alawis go up into the north and create their own enclave, okay, the Kurds may well then suddenly decide to say, and this is a nightmare scenario for everybody, the Kurds will then turn up and say, hey, well, we want to carve up our little thing. That will set the Turks, you know, that, that, that's like dynamite for the Turks. The, the, that's guaranteed to get Turkish intervention into Syria. And uh, the Druze might sort of say, well, we want to do something in the south. Um, the, the Jazeera guys, the, the, the tribes may, may decide to sort of, uh, you know, forge their link, and, and, it, it, and then you have complete chaos. And nobody really wants to see that. So everybody's kind of very sensitive to this issue. Thank you. Your questions, please. Comments, reactions. You've been waiting so patiently. Thank you. Please. Um. Do you think the regime is making Lebanon's already fragile and unstable government unexpectedly expect an offensive threat to this regime? Sorry, Lebanon? Yeah. Like, you know, Lebanon's... Yeah, yeah, sorry, no, I know. Would this, like, make Lebanon expect an unexpected threat? Like, this be offensive? I'm not sure what you mean by making Lebanon unexpected threat. Like, some sort of, I don't know, a spur that would lead Syria's tensions back to you mean how the blowback might occur? Um, okay, the, remember first of all that Lebanon right now is currently being run by Hezbollah-led government, which is uh, for all intents and purposes fairly favorable to, 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 to the Syrian regime. In fact, they are pro-Syrian regime. Um, and, and, and in fact, the Lebanese government as it stands has been um, very, uh, in its actions, uh, very cautious in as far as, for example, refusing to allow aid, refusing to recognize Syrians who are Syrian refugees living in Lebanon to be classified as refugees and would not allow aid to be received by them. It has, uh, you know, put restrictions on Syrians living in Lebanon who are trying to, uh, you know, who, who are basically working against the regime. Um, it has threatened them. Uh, we know that Hezbollah is funneling arms and, uh, and, and, and support, technical support and otherwise. And if you believe all the other stories, also providing the, many of the snipers that are shooting at the protesters, etc., etc. So Lebanon is already engaged, but not all of Lebanon. Obviously, the, the, the pro-Syrian factions within Lebanon. And, 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 and Syria has always had a very strong influence in Lebanon from, a, you know, way back from the 70s, they've had that. So S Lebanon is already drawn into that. Um, a collapse of the regime in, in Syria will have repercussions on the Lebanese scene because it will take away a major pillar of support for 
you know, groups like Hezbollah who will now have to readdress some of that. I can tell you one little anecdote though. Um, early on when the uprising started, we were smuggling in a lot of equipment. And later on, we've obviously now there are people smuggling in arms. Who do you think are some of the prime sources of smuggled equipment for us? Yes, for money. They come, they knock on the door, they pick up the stuff that we want taken in, and uh, they pick up their packets of cash, and they go. And, you know, the, 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 the leadership knows. So I think they're also playing both sides of the, 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 the line. They're, they're keeping their options open. Please. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks so much for speaking uh, to us, by the way. It's fascinating. Um, I wanted to know what you think of, it seems like the main thrust of your strategy is about defection, about gaining defection, which is, is great. I mean, you know, if you can uh, do that, I'm just questioning whether, at what point do you start to question the basis for, for that, you know, after you've seen, so if you, that relies on, like you said, a peaceful um, strategy, and, and eventually people will have a calculus and saying, look, this has gone far enough, you know, yeah, we're done here. But uh, isn't the fact that you have fragmentation, you also have such a, you have some violent uh, uh, resistance, you have, you don't have a coordinated strategy, isn't that, You're assuming that, sorry if I'm interrupting, because I think I got the point, just if, if that's okay. I think I got the point you're trying to make, but you're assuming that the, the defections are only a product of a peaceful uh, civil resistance protest. Violent, and I'm not, I'm not a supporter of the military option, but I'm just saying even military options are also a product, can produce defections. What you are trying to create is a situation where um, through either military or civil you know, disobedience, protests, whatever, economic um, uh, sort of pressure, uh, international pressure, you're trying to create, and international pressure may even take the form of um, airstrikes. All of these are all going to funnel in to one narrow point, and that's why you want that wedge. Uh, and, and hopefully, and, 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 and the, the argument I had with people in State Department, for example, was that they weren't pushing hard enough early on when the regime could have cracked. Every time you push and then you ease off, you give the regime time to recover and to get used to that kind of pressure. What was shocking to them six months ago is no longer shocking them. Six months ago when the United States wagged a finger at them, it, was, it, it shocked them. Um, uh, you know, in, in the same way that when the... I can, uh, do you know your Vietnam history? Um, Tet Offensive, 67, okay? That was a defining moment, not because the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese actually won the offensive, but because of the impact it had on U.S. administration. Because the U.S. administration has been telling everybody, it's over, it's nearly done, we've, we've won, all we need, Westmoreland is saying, oh, we only need a few more, you know, come, maybe come another 50,000 and I'll have it over and done with by Christmas, and everybody can go home. And then the Tet Offensive comes and it proves that the Vietnamese are far from over. Now, the Arab League initiative, that first one that came out in, in, in December, that was like the Tet Offensive in my reading for the regime. Why? Because the regime had already, by November, by late, by late October and November, it was telling its own people, 
And I know this from people that we talk to on the inside. It's over, it's done. We're just one offensive away and we'll crack them and it'll all go away and everything will go back to normal. Thank you very much for your support. Thank you for not really rocking the boat for us. All those of you who supported us are going to be richly rewarded. We'll throw in some reforms for you. Don't panic. Everything's okay. Look, we're, we're in control. Look, the, the international community that, you know, up, jumped up and down and threatened all sorts of stuff didn't come through. Look, everything's fine. Look, everything's going to be okay. Just, just give, bear with us five more minutes and it'll all be over. And then, boom, the Arabs come. It was such a shock. I had people call me up saying, oh my God, is this the end? Is this it? Is this, are we done? Are we toast? What's going to happen? You know, and these are people on the inside. Okay, but then the problem, hap what happens then is that there's no follow through for that. And then, and then it's almost like, you know, the, 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 the Arab world, the, the Arab state, the, the Arab league roared and then it kind of startled itself. It, it was such a loud noise. It was, oh my God, did, did I just produce this? And it was like, and the moment was lost, and the regime... Now, the re if, if the Arab League comes up now with another statement like that, we're going to go, oh yeah, sure, poof, I can cope with that. And it's very... And it's, you need the pressure. The pressure has to be hard, it has to be successive, and it has to be continuous and sustainable. And then you will get a crack. The longer it takes... You know, unfortunately, every, every month that we don't get... A, it's costing us about 1,000 people a month right now. That's, that's roughly 800 to 1,000. Um, one question here. Yes. Uh, you know, for many, the, the Assad regime is source of problem in this area, uh, east of the Mediterranean. If you have your uh, wand, or how do you see the future 10 years from now? Assad regime goes, uh, reasonable transition, not full-blown civil war. Do you see a relationship with Israel, uh, the whole area? Nice question. Um, I was asked by <laughs> I was asked by um, somebody in D.C. not long ago um, about you know so will so when the opposition wins are you going to sign a peace treaty with Israel? I was like, you can't ask me that question. I don't know. I'm going to set up a democracy, and then the democracy, the people will decide what they want. And if the people vote for war, then we go to war. And if the people vote for peace, they'll vote for peace. But my understanding of how a democracy works and a, a democratically established society is that they're more likely to, 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 to look for solutions. But that will also depend on the other side as well. It will depend on the Israelis. And, and, yeah. um, but I can tell you from the Israeli perspective, which is better for the Israelis? To make peace with a democracy that will respect the outcome or with a dictatorship that once that dictatorship falls, it, you know, then everyone will turn around and say, hey, we didn't make this deal with us, you made it with them. We don't, you know. Good question, sir. Uh, so you described the composition of the merchant class in Syria, and I guess I have two points, like, in question. Um, to what degree is that, like, a prominent sector of the Syrian economy? And then if the regime falls, what's going to be the economic impact, especially on that Okay, good point. Um, look, the, the, Syria is a is a society of, of, of merchants, at least the urban. Urban Syrians are merchants, rural Syrians are farmers, okay? And, and you have that dichotomy. And in fact, it's quite interesting, and for those of us who, who, who look at the socio-dynamics of that, you know, uh, for somebody like me who comes from Damascus and who comes from an upper-class Damascene family, for us, if you're not from Damascus or Aleppo, you're a peasant anyway. You can come from, you know, you can come from Homs, you can come from, Daraa can be a, the biggest city in the world. It's not Damascus, it's a village. And that's part of the pro, I'm sorry, I mean, I, I, I don't think like that. I'm just giving you, what? I, I mean, you know, I mean, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 we're, we're very, huh? It sounds like New Yorkers. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, so you have that, you know, that, you know, and, and they're a very important component of that. In terms of the, the, the other uh, part of your question, which was, uh, can you remind me? Sorry. If the regime falls, what's going to be the economic side? Look, the, 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 the economy is really critical. And one of the things that we have to watch as, as an opposition is, yes, we are increasing economic pressure on the regime. But if the economy tanks completely, if we destroy the economy, how are we going to pull that out again? Because you have you know, all these people that went out and, and protested and whatnot. They have expectations. They have high expectations. They expect that the change in the regime will also bring about a, a change in their economic fortunes. And if we have no economy to, 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 to revive and, and, and to fulfill these expectations, we're going to have a long period of uh, basically civil unrest, let me put it this way to you. So I, I think they're going to be very, very critical in recovering the economy and, 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 and ensuring that stability kicks back in fairly quickly. Um, oh, sure. Yeah, you, you, yes, OK, please. yeah. You mentioned the Arab League. Mm -hmm. And the Arab League seems to have come off as kind of toothless and uh, befuddled uh, in, uh, in what to do in uh, Syria. And, uh, I was wondering, at least that that's what I get from the newspaper reports, what do you, what's your Look, I mean, look, the Arab League, I mean, one thing that people have to remember about the Arab League, the Arab League is not a decision-making body in the sense that it has no power of its own. It is, it, it carries out the will of the Arab states who are represented in the Arab League. So the Arab League itself cannot come up and say, I demand that this happens and I, and I you know, and I am going to make the, has no executive power. It it basically does what the Arab states tell it to say. Sure. So you you have to remember that. I so if there is a befuddled nature to it, it's be, if there's a, if not a befuddled, but if there seems to be a, 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 a kind of conflicting set of messages coming out, that's partly because there is disagreement among the Arab states in terms of what to do about Syria, and that is then mirrored into the Arab League. I was thinking of it as a kind of group that was 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 bringing pressure to get some kind of a resolution. Of yeah, but they're not independent. Remember, they, they, it's I the, the states with the, the states that want a resolution in one direction are going to be pushing in one direction. The states, so Iraq, for example, Lebanon, um, are going to be uh, pushing in one direction. Algeria, the Sudan, they sit in one end, and then you're going to have the Saudis, you're going to have the uh, um, um, the, the Qataris, the um, Egypt, you know, and and, and and that's what you're seeing. You're seeing basically that kind of conflict mirrored into the Arab League and. That's sectarian. Certainly, Shia. I don't know. Algeria is not. Algeria is not is Sunni, and no. it's it's with the other. No, it's is, totalitarian. It, yeah. Okay. So it's not okay. just sectarian. You know. All right. <laughs> so, um, how many hands do we still have? One. I see some over there. Two, three, four, four questions. No more. No Thank you for bringing the flag, by the way. Yes. All right. Uh, please. Yeah. Your question is a very important one. It needs uh, long wars or civil wars or outside occupations. Uh, Lebanon is a very good example. They had a civil war from 19, uh, what, 95 to, from what, 1975 to 95. It's 75 yeah, to. 15 year. And what happened? The merchants leave, the industrialists leave. It's very difficult to really revive the economy. That is. Uh, the same is true in Iran, for example, uh, the revolution, uh, since the revolution. People have left, the capital leaves the 
the technical know-how of the doctors and engineers, the, the upper elite in different, they live. So that's, it's one of the things that, uh, if it will continue for a long period of time in Lebanon, so, uh, I mean, uh, Syria, yeah. will have to deal with that problem. Uh, I was just going to, uh, I had a, when I went to Syria twice, my host was a, a political scientist, and he was a Turkish, a Syrian teaching in the University of Damascus. Oh, is that, yes. uh, what's his name? So I know who that is. He posted a letter from, letter from Turkey to me just a week ago. So apparently, I, I did, he, he wrote that, well, look, I am not a supporter of uh, Bashar al-Assad, <coughs> uh, but I'm really afraid he's a Syrian. Uh, so I mean, th that's, when I asked this, the minorities, the question. So, I, I, so this is one of the things. Whether he has just went for a vacation, I do not know. I'm not going to ask him, but I really worry about him as my friend, uh, that he's an Assyrian uh, yeah. professor at the University of Damascus, teaching Turkish and also political. So I really worry about him that he, he, he either left because of the fear that now so that there will be a backlash, there will be a revenge. Would, yeah. would you please um, collect your, uh, I mean, keep your answers until the end. Let's collect questions. Sure. Please. I mean, point minorities. This is a very important point, which has not been addressed uh, appropriately yet. Point. Give me 10 minutes, I'll address it. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have that today. You talk about the confidence of the Syrian army. Uh, the regime is already talking about this. It's essentially a civil war, namely the protesters, not protesters, but actually shooting at me. Uh, and to the degree that's presumably something to that, but that yeah. would oh, no, that's, that's a real war, and there's more weapons coming in. You get into a situation in which you either support the armed devil who is uh, in the regime or the armed devil who is opposing it. So the danger would be that it, if it becomes a real war, it's that you have to take sides and the danger would be that people mostly support the regime the same thing. Unless the army totally cracks, and that seems, uh, well, let me know if that seems likely. Hmm. Who wanted to ask a question on the side? Please. Um, China recently declared that they're not going to be vetoing any of the The gentleman with a flag. Um, I, I have two short questions that you may. Uh, the first is I see an inevitability in the uh, civil war aspect due to simply the Iranian prospects of what would happen if Syria were to go away with the whole aspect <coughs> of the Shiite crescent going away, which would be going straight through Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, because if Syria were to go, then clearly those two would. Uh, disseminate to almost nothing. And that being the only stronghold uh, Iran really has in the Middle East, I would see it um, trying to hold on to that tooth and nail. Uh, do you see the same uh, in that aspect? Uh, the second question is, there are, I believe, about 20 million Syrians outside of Syria that you know have accumulated through years um, due to a huge amount of exodus, uh, particularly in the 70s and 80s. <coughs> how do we? Th how do you think we can ever reverse this brain drain and um, that occurred? And uh, is there anything in the works for that? I know there's a Ministry of Expatriates, but you know that's a big failure. Well, uh, well, you know what? Uh, so ten minutes. Ten. You are so cruel, George. You are so cruel. Oh no! <laughs> Just playing my role. Yes, I know. I know. And, and I. And I um, well, 
<coughs> okay, twelve minutes. All right. <laughs> That's right. Your your your, genero- your generosity knows no bounds. No, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I've been in Damascus. I know how dem- uh, how. Right. I will. I will. I will. I will. I will attempt not to abuse your hospitality then. Okay. Please. Um, okay. I'm, I'm going to go in reverse order, if that's okay. And I'm going to leave the minorities to the last because I know it's what George wants to hear about. So he's less likely to come down on me. Um, so <laughs> um, look. Re- reverse the brain drain. Um, the, the, the brain drain is a result of a, a, a certain situation in Syria, and when uh, Hafsal Assad died. In fact, when Bashar was being groomed to take over, there was a, an attempt, and they, in fact, the regime has tried several efforts to reverse that, but the last being that time. And people like myself went back to Syria for that reason. But because we very quickly discovered there was no real will to reform, there was no real will to actually do something really sustainable, um, gradually people, you know, very you know, important people, uh, who, who important in terms of their ability to have serious influence on, on uh, pr- picking Syria up and taking it up to the next level, decided, okay, this is no good for us, and we left again. And uh, I was one of those people who went back, saw the situation, realized this is not going to happen, and then packed up, and, and it's a story in its own right. Okay, so yes, if you get a Syria that, is, that has the appropriate environment, I think people will start to go back. And uh, more importantly, the new brains that are coming out will not want to leave. It, it's a very long process, though, and it's not something quick. In terms of Iran giving up Syria, again, don't, don't, don't overread this. I can tell you that right up to um, uh, 2007, 2008, 2009, Syria was giving all sorts of, conf- in fact, particularly after the Obama, when Obama was voted in, Okay, Syria was giving, we were, I was engaged in all sorts of um, panels and, and groups who were looking at can we engage Syria, how do we engage Syria, what can the Obama administration expect from Syria. The Syrians were giving all sorts of mixed signals in terms of, and in fact at one point the Iranians got kind of confused and were a little bemused by the whole thing because I remember talking to one guy from the Iranian embassy who was like, well, you know, what's your man doing? Can't he, you know, does he want us or does he not want us? How, how we, now, that's not to say that there aren't those very important aspects that you mentioned, the merchant, the, the, the mercantile connections, the political. And at the end of the day, I think that pre the events, now everything's changed, but pre-uprising, Syria had a certain set of important conditions regarding its own role in the region and in terms of its own security. If the West, if, 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 if uh, uh, the international community had been willing, if, and the regional uh, players had been willing to address these for Syria, I think Syria would have been willing to hand over that card. And, and there were serious discussions about that. Uh, and, and obviously now that's all moot because we've moved on to something else. And if the regime falls, you can be sure that the relationship will, with Iran, if it doesn't completely go away, it will be seriously um, scaled down. Um, any possibility of the Russians sort of moving on? Again, I, I don't like to see things in absolutes. Um, there is no such thing as a red line. There, there, there are, right now this is a red line because it suits me. Tomorrow I'll find, they're, they're probably bargaining behind the scenes. They, you know, there's a lot of to and throw. And, and at the end of the day, nobody paints themselves into that kind of corner because if the international community decides to go and basically do what it wants to do, and it leaves Russia behind. Russia's, you know, the Russians are going to look really silly, aren't they? So I, I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't kind of read too much into this. It is a problem. It's a serious problem for us. 
And behind the scenes, we are talking with the Russians continuously. I know that. I know, I know personally people who are there every day talking to the Russians saying, you really don't want to do this because you know what? When this regime collapses, you don't want to be on the wrong side of the tracks. So th there is that kind of stuff. And they're basically saying, well, what guarantees are you going to give us? And a lot of that stuff is not just guarantees asking from the West, but asking from us too. And I know, this is the, I know for a fact these are ongoing negotiations. Um, <clears throat> look, it's important to understand why the revolution has, which started off as a peaceful uprising, which the people who, who established and who went out to the street, the original people who went out on the streets, the LCC leadership and so on, wanted a peaceful revolution. They didn't want a, they didn't want a military conflict. Okay? But there is a point in time where, and there are a lot of reasons, and I, I, I don't want to go into too many details, but, but the outcome of that is this the civil resistance activism started to fail. It, was, it, it produced some pretty important results initially, and then its sort of returns were diminishing. And because we failed to revive that, we failed to inject, and I say we, we as the opposition, we failed to revive that to, to find new ways. I can tell you, civil, anybody who knows anything about civil resistance knows that diversification of tactics and being on message are the two most important things. And these are areas that we were basically weak in. And we are now paying the price. Because when people don't get results, they start to go for this easy. Believe it or not, the military option, the going for the guns, the shooting back, is the easy option. The hard option is to maintain the civil resistance style. Now, what we're trying to do is you know, we can't reject that entirely. But we're also trying to revive that other side. Hopefully, a twin track will reduce you know when, when people get more when people score successes with the nonviolent they'll 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 sort of there'll be less um, need for the violent but ultimately we're going in that direction okay the young men uh, the you know and, and it's mainly now young men and not women anymore are actually going out there getting the guns and there's a lot of guns pouring in a lot of weapons are coming in and uh, it's becoming more and more militarized by the day um, finally the minorities well, I left that last on purpose, as I said. Okay, that's alarms and my question. <clears throat> right. Look, the minorities, in, the first question you asked me, I believe, was are there, is there any minority that supports the, uh, the, 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 the uprising? Remember, by minorities, I should distinguish. There are religious minorities and there are ethnic minorities. So there are two types of minorities. Okay? So the Kurds are an ethnic minority. They're not a religious minority. The, the uh, Circassians, the Shishan, are an ethnic minority. The uh, Turkomans are an ethnic minority. All right? Whereas uh, the Christians, the Assyrians, the uh, Druze, the Alawis, these are obviously religious minorities. So we need to separate. Um, the Kurds, I can tell you right now that we have a lot of Kurdish support. But at the same time, there is an issue with the Kurds. The Kurds have their own history. In, the, in 2005, the Kurd, 2004, 2005, the Kurds went up and had their own uprising. Yeah. And they were very, very heavily oppressed, suppressed. Their uprising was very brutally suppressed. I had personal friends of mine who were taken away, tortured, and we had to intercede in the most, you know, just to get them out from these kingdoms. And they have not forgotten that. The Kurds have not forgotten that we let them down into it. So they're being more cautious. They want to see, a little, they want to see what we have first. They, you know, sh they want to see more from us before they will give in. Plus, they're not very comfortable with the Turkish role. There's way too much influence from Turkey and too much Turkish interaction in, in the whole thing. And they don't like that. So the Turks have their own issue. In regards to the Druze, 
again, the, look, there is something what, what we refer to as the law of minorities. Okay? The law of minorities is very simple. If you are a minority, you do not engage in a war of attrition with the majority. Preferably, you do not engage in any war. The best thing a minority can do is to sit by the wayside and then wait till the fighting's over and then kind of come back and say, well, let me in now. And then you, 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 you know, because that is, that is the preservation, you know, code. Now, again, I, I believe Jumblat's people, the Druze, are mostly playing this game. Having said that, there are individuals, I mean, one of our most prominent and earliest bloggers is a Druze. His, his, you know, his, his famous as Malad Amran, his name is Rami Nakhle, he, he, he's one of our heroes. And he's Druze, you know, Druze from Sweda. Um, and there are many, many more like him. I, I know personally many Druze who are right now in jail because of that. But as a minority, have the Druze Mashaykh risen up and said, we are, no, they have not declared yet. And I don't think they will. It's going to take a little more. As for the Christians, and they are very, a very important minority again. There are many Christians who support us. Right? And, 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 and I spoke to a, a friend of mine who's a doctor here. He lives in Cleveland, who at the beginning of the uprising back in May, was mortified at the whole thing and he was for God's sake don't even mention the uprising and you know we're gonna have a catastrophe he was one of the people who went back to Syria with Kucinich to meet Assad he called me up a few days ago he said Amr I'm sorry I'm so sorry we were wrong 70% of the people I'm talking to right now from Syria relatives friends are with the opposite they're no longer with the regime he didn't say we're with the opposite we are no longer with the regime who should we support so they're beginning to ask that question. It's beginning to emerge. I'm not telling you everybody's off the fence. And I'm telling you, the fears are there. And part of the fears are because there is a long history. It is part of the culture, the, the, the Kitab al-Ahzan, the, 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 the Book of Sorrows, okay, the, that recounts the history of, of the Christian massacres in the mid-19th century. That is still alive. They still talk about it. They still tell it. They still speak of it. And, and, and we as an opposition have to address that. I can tell you, we have not been as effective, or but it's changing. I know uh, the Assyrian leadership in uh, one of the main columns in the SNC in the Syrian National Council is the Christian column headed by uh, George uh, Stefel, okay, who's an Assyrian, and he's now going. To, he's going to be in Cleveland, I think, in the next few days or maybe week, I think, to address the, that same group. So it's happening. The Alawis. That's the hardest one. Yeah, of course. They're tricky. Partly, now, having said that, I was in Berlin just recently. One of our strongest kind of, if you want, one of our you know, colleagues is, is Alawi. Mm -hmm. And remember, some of the harshest resistance to the regime during the Hafez al-Assad period did not come from the Sunnis. It came from the Alawis, the Rabat al-Amal al-Shu'i, the, 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 the communist um, uh, groups that were, that, that were all Alawis, Masyaf region was one of them for years and years and years was a hotbed of anti-Assad, anti-Hafz al-Assad. And in fact, at one point, despite Hafz al-Assad, when, when he basically threw out his brother Rifat, they became Rifat, you know, Rifat supporters, just despite the brother. <laughs> you know, and for no other so you have those dynamics. But again, you, but at the end of the day, you have to address these people. I think if the regime collapses, our, and I'll end on that, uh, th what we do know is that those who work, the security, the, the mukhabara, those guys, will hold their posts to the very end, and then they will go home to protect their families. What happens next 
is going to be the defining moment. If you allow, if we as an opposition fail to take control, opposition uh, meaning with, in, in partnership with elements of the regime, opposition on our own, opposition in partnership with how, however the scenario spins out. If we fail to then create a transition process that does not protect these uh, minorities, that does not make sure that these minorities are not subjected to a catastrophe, then we have only ourselves to blame. And I can tell you, everybody I know, everybody I deal with, everybody I talk to, the opposition members who are engaged, who are the leadership on the street, the, the LCC guys, we're all on the same page. I have not heard anybody saying, well, you know, I mean, okay, you get the odd crank here and there who says, you know, I mean, I, I think, um, what's his name? Uh, Mamun Hamsi had some awful, awful, I mean, those of you who know who Mamun Hamsi is, had some terrible, I mean, he, you know, statements to make. But he, I don't think he really uh, represents the vast majority of people. Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking, <laughs> thank you all. Thank you very much so, for listening. Thank you.